welcome to the Advance Your Art podcast, where we talk about the journey from artist to entrepreneur and everything in between. You've worked hard to hone your craft. Now take it to the next level with tips, techniques, strategies, and routines used by successful artists to grow their businesses and careers. Now, let's get started and have some fun with your host, Yuri Cataldo. Welcome to the show. How are you today? I am well. I'm well. Thanks for having me. I just before we start anything, I just want to thank you for uh, giving me your time and for your persistence in doing this. And anybody else who list, who's listening who uh, believes that they want uh, they want to speak to you, I think they should. And um, I just I'm really appreciative that you took the time to, to speak with me. Of course, it's my my pleasure. You you beat me to the punch. Usually, I'm the one thanking all my guests. So. Uh, <laughs> I am flattered. Thank you so much. And thank you again for, for Green to come on here. I know you're a very busy person and uh, it's, uh, it's, it's great to have you on the show. So for my listeners who are not familiar with your background and your work, how do you describe yourself and what you do? Um, so I'm, I'm a CPA by trade. And uh, that's basically, that's one of my main areas of focus. And so I run um, a tax resolution uh, business uh, called Economics Tax Relief. So Economics is my, you know, it's a play on my name, mm-hmm. E-K-A-N-O-M-I-C-S, um, tax solution. So in, in essence, we just help people and small business owners uh, deal with IRS audits, deal with IRS enforcement actions, and kind of give them the peace of mind um, when dealing with the IRS. Because when you say IRS, people start freaking out, start crying and all this other stuff. And oh, yeah. there's, a, there's a way to deal with them effectively mm-hmm. uh, in order to get uh, you know, a resolution that you like. And that's kind of, that's basically what we do. We advocate um, for American taxpayers and even foreign taxpayers. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. I have, uh, I have dealt with the IRS a few times in my life and, and yes, <laughs> it's, it's, it's never something that that's enjoyable. Yes. And, and one thing to add to that, just for, sure. just for an aside is that everything is um, the, the, the service, we call it the service. So um, the IRS literally has hired 15,000 new agents this year alone uh, they've increased their budget. They're going after enforcement. They're going after a whole bunch of a whole host of different uh, industries, including people who, who engage in crypto. They've already sent letters for that, foreign bank accounts, mm-hmm. and even just regular people who have small businesses where there's you know threat of um, of uh, financial malfeasance, uh, so to speak. So that's there's no time like the present for like especially our industry. It's it's going to be crazy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so let's so before we get in, I guess, into more of those details, let's let's start from the beginning of, of your career. What initially made you want to become an accountant? Uh, funny enough, the main reason, and I get I get this question a lot when I do interviews. <laughs> yeah. And, and 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 when I tell it, people start laughing, but this is the reality. I wanted I wanted to be able to get a job so I could eventually emigrate to the United States. Okay. That, and, that's a great reason. Yeah, and I have no. This obviously everything was done legally. I'm a citizen now. I, you know, I, I naturalized, um, got my green card through through an employer uh, like 10 years ago. Or so, but literally, I was methodical in what I decided to do. I, I was my freshman year in college, mm-hmm. and uh, I'm from originally born and raised in Canada in Toronto, but my parents I'm a Nigerian descent. And then, so I'm in school, and my my guidance, my first year guidance counselor. Well, is a Canadian who had married an American. And I was like, 
you know, I was on I was on a student visa, and anybody who's ever been in that process knows any all the ins and outs of immigration. So, I'm I'm just thinking, man, I want to live in this country. I've been I've been wanting to live in the U.S. since I was 12 years old, mm-hmm. um, 11 years old. That's when I actually made the decision. Before that, I'm sure I wanted to. I just love everything about this country, and she just said, "Well, you got to get a green card." I was like, "Well, how do you do that?" She's like, "I don't know." She got her through marriage, and I was like, "I'm not gonna get my through. I'm I'm 20 years old. I'm not trying to get married right now." And so, yeah, I, I literally just set on a path to try and figure out what I was going to do. And and one of the professions that actually is highly sought is uh, an accountant slash CPA. Mm-hmm. Yeah, excellent. I mean, I mean that that's as good as as a reason for anything. Um, so I think that's that's great. I I want to talk, talk about then your connection then to so. When I hear the term CPA, I don't automatically think of professional basketball player. No. Not at all. So so tell me about that. What was it like being a professional basketball player and and doing that for a while? It was um, – so, again, the, you, you're going to see a common theme. A lot of the things that I've done in my life, there, like there's three major areas in my life um, where I've achieved success despite the odds being against me. Mm-hmm. And the general theme in that is, um, I ended up, it's funny enough, I ended up putting the, creating like a small little pocketbook that actually explains that. But, um, <laughs> yeah, I decided, I, I, sorry, as I'm talking, I'm thinking of things. Yeah. It's funny, my, before I continue the story, my wife always like is marveled because I'll say things that I for, I've forgotten I've already done. Mm-hmm. And she'd be like, what, you did that? Where'd you go here? How'd you, and then I'd, I'd tell, oh yeah, this and this person, that person. And we'll watch a television show. Oh yeah, I, I did a class with that person. And I'm like, what? And so... <laughs> <laughs> things I forget. So that's kind of part of the story. So sure. um, the general theme in the three areas of my life, um, three major things in my life, now mm-hmm. that I've, I'm, I'm cognizant enough to apply is I literally made a decision about what I wanted. And then uh, despite the odds, and then I found a process to follow that would, uh, that would increase the likelihood of me getting there. Mm-hmm. And then I, and then I added massive amounts of action to it. Like, like exorbitant things. I, I, yeah. I burned the ships, as you know, as Tony Robbins says, I did all that stuff. I, I just committed. So the point of basketball, I went to a small, I played basketball, college basketball at a small school called Calvin College, now Calvin University mm-hmm. in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Mm-hmm. And, and uh, I, I'm, I'm, when you talk about obscurity, I'm in obscurity. Like if you, if you live in the Midwest, you're familiar with them. Other than that, yeah. you've never heard of that school and I, I, I'm, I'm willing to bet no one else you know in your life knows have heard of that school. And again, it's a great school, but no one's right. heard of it. And so if you haven't heard of it, you think some, you think some foreign professional team in Europe or in Asia is going to have heard of it? Probably not. Right. So, uh, so I'd made a decision since I was like in high school, I want to play professional basketball. I, 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 was, I, was, I knew that the NBA wasn't uh, on, on the horizon for me, but I knew I could play and make some decent money playing in Europe. So. Mm-hmm. Um, while my senior year in college, I started compiling lists of people. I, you know, I, I became friends with people online who, who ran a, a foreign site called uh, Eurobasket.com. Uh, back, this is like in 1999, 1998, mm-hmm. and the internet still kind of its infancy. So I compiled a list of all these teams and people who I knew over, or who I connected with overseas was sending me information of all the teams and the general managers and the coaches and their emails. And, and I was just cutting tapes sending them over, cutting tapes, sending emails. Like every day I was emailing people uh, on mass. I probably sent hundreds, no, sorry, probably thousands of, of emails um, to teams overseas in all country, every single country, it didn't matter. Yeah. Um, even in Asia, even in Australia, you name it. And then, and then my, my senior year, 
uh, a few things happened. One, uh, while everybody was interviewing for jobs, I'd interviewed for, you know, for a job just because that's what everybody told you you're supposed to do. And I interviewed uh, for Arthur Anderson. They're like, well, we don't really sponsor, you know, foreign uh, students. I was like, all right. Funny enough, you know, two years later, they're out of business. So, um, <laughs> you know, so I kind of like, ha ha, catch yeah. them. But <laughs> so I decided, I, just, I was like, you know what, this is, this is for the birds. If I really want to play professionally, I got to commit to this because once I get a job and get a visa and everything else, the likelihood of me leaving is going to be negative zero, less than zero, negative a million. So right. I, um, I, I literally said, okay, this is where I burned the ships. I, I literally put all of my efforts into sending emails and working out and, and to make money just before I graduated, I, I worked like as a janitor, like mm-hmm. cleaning office buildings at night. So from six to midnight, I, clean, I cleaned office buildings and, uh, and like little offices in, in the area. I had a friend who, 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 um, who knew uh, someone who owned a cleaning company mm-hmm. and then I'd come home. Then I would come home at night. I was, I was living in the basement of one of my former teammates' mother's house, paying her a couple hundred dollars a month in rent. And I'm um, living in a basement as a janitor. And when I come home at midnight, I'm on the phone calling people because of the six-hour time delay or seven hours, depending on where I was calling. I'm on the phone anywhere from 12 to 4 a.m. in the morning on the phone calling people, in addition to sending them emails and sending them tapes. And I'm, in the meantime, while I'm doing all that, I'm watching um, back then, I don't know how old you are, but... I'm assuming you're younger than me, but back then there was a TV show called Wild On on E Network with Brooke Burke. And I'm watching her and she's going all over the all over the world, like going to these different awesome countries, going to Europe, going to all this. I'm watching that. I'm watching that as I'm making phone calls. I'm watching MTV Europe while I'm making yeah. phone calls. I'm watching <laughs> European stuff as I'm making phone calls. Like I, this this was this is a level of commitment that most people wouldn't do. Mm-hmm. And then eventually I ended up getting a, getting a contract to play in Switzerland. Uh, someone called me. I thought it was a joke. I thought it was kidding. <laughs> and, and I thought it was kidding. And he was a guy with a French accent. I was like, who's playing? And I really, I was going to say, who the hell is this on my phone? Yeah. And, um, and then uh, he, he gave me, uh, he's like, look, we want to sign you. And they, they faxed me a contract over in French. I had to get it translated, even though I speak French, but not business French. Right. <laughs> and, um, and then, and that was it. And I played in Switzerland. I did the exact, very similar process. And I played in England. Um, and before I ended up going to going to Europe, just a side note, I ended up going to um, to North Korea for about ten days. Oh yeah, yeah for um, uh, for a basketball uh, tournament, a touring basketball team, Canadian. Uh, it's called Athletes in Action. So mm-hmm. I went with Athletes in Action, went to we were in Pyongyang for about ten days. I spent about uh, a week and a half in China, about a week in Taiwan. Over in, I was in Asia for like maybe a month and a half. Very cool. Very cool. So what was it like? I know you were there for a short time, but what was it? What was your time in Korea, North Korea like? It, all everything you, everything you see on the documentaries, Lisa Ling, all these people. Yeah. Um, it, it's literally like that. And I mm. have uh, funny enough, like the things that I see there, I'm like, Oh shit, I've been there before. I've been there. Like the one day have these big two bronze statues mm-hmm. of the former two former leaders back then it was only one. Cause Kim, um, Kim Jong-il was still alive. So right. uh, it was Kim Il-sung. It was big, you know, everybody go there. It's exactly how you look. People go there. It's empty. And then um, everything is pretty much, you know, again, I have no, just, you know, I have no problem with no career or anything like that, but right. uh, it's all staged for, you know, for external consumption. Um, the hotel that Otto Warmbier was in, we stayed in that hotel. It was only one hotel, mm-hmm. you know, 
Um, everybody stays in that same hotel. All the floors are bugged. Every, all the rooms are, we're told that beforehand, you know, <laughs> and it, but you have to decide how you want to behave. That's, I mean, it's right. up to you. Like you want to act like you're an American, then go ahead and act like an American. And then, you know, um, so we were warned all this going in there and we played the national team. We played in front of 30,000 people screaming North Koreans, mm -hmm. we ended up losing, mm -hmm. uh, funny enough. Um, <laughs> and I, I had guys on my team arguing with the ref saying, no, I was in the foul. I was like, I go, dude, I just want to go home, man. Like, why are you arguing for who cares? It's, you know, whatever, just play ball. Like, okay, right. it's, it's a con job. Fine. But so, uh, but North Korea was amazing. And then the, the, we don't, you don't get to see all the stuff that's happening. You don't see the, back then it was a famine. You don't see the famine that's happening. You don't see all the poor people, um, everybody in the city, you know, or basically it's like, it's like Disney world where there, everyone's a hired actor. Sure. Interesting. But it was dope as heck. It was amazing <laughs> as heck. <laughs> I mean, it sounds like, you know, for, for as, as sad as, as the other side of that country is, it sounds like an amazing experience to be able to, you know, to be there and to do that and to see that firsthand rather than just like everyone, like most people, like such as myself have seen on documentaries. So that's yeah. great. So, Okay, so you're you're playing. When did you decide to to stop playing basketball and to switch over to your calling as an accountant? Um, calling. That's a great word. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, see what happened. What what actually happened was, um, um, I ended up playing it. So I played in Switzerland, played in Europe. Sorry, played in, in England. Then the next season, and the team I was playing for ran out of money, like okay. halfway through the season. And I had a teammate with me from Atlanta. He was, he was my, um, we had two, two foreigners, mm -hmm. uh, me and this other guy. And, you know, we're just like, this is, I mean, and, and they wanted us to keep playing. And I was like, well, mm -hmm. I mean, come on. I mean, we, you know, I'm not doing it for free. It's ridiculous. So, um, so I made a decision at that point. I tried to get on a couple of teams and I was like, I now, and then I realized something. If I was an American citizen, I would have played longer. Mm -hmm. uh, my, my main goal at the end of all this was to become a U.S. citizen and to live in the U.S. freely and do whatever I wanted and be entrepreneurial. Um, I can't, it makes it a lot harder to do that if I'm a 35 year old entry level accountant. Oh, right. Um, and so I started thinking, you know what, you know what, it makes a lot more sense if, if I don't get something in the next couple of months, I'm going to cut my losses and mm -hmm. just go back, go back home and, you know, and start, start working towards, you know, my end game. So that's literally the decision I made and how, how that ended up happening. I ended up moving back. I spent about a month or two in Europe after my, after we left us the team, we worked out for a couple of teams. I was in France for about a couple of weeks and um, almost went to Luxembourg and, and Lux, um, Luxembourg or Australia for, I had opportunities there that didn't work out. And then ended up moving home. My mom lives in Niagara Falls, Canada. I moved back to my mom's house for about a month and a half. And then I got a job in Buffalo, New York. Oh, uh, nice. Accounting. Okay. Yeah. Nice, nice, nice. And it's so it's you've had a, a, a very interesting career in that you've kind of worked at a lot of the big companies. Yes. When so with with as much experience as you've had, when did you decide that you wanted to move on to the next company? Like, was there a moment when you're like, I've learned all I can here. Now I'm going somewhere else. Or, or when did you decide to take your opportunities and go somewhere else at each of these junctures? Good question. The, the, here's the thing. And, yeah. and, and again, I'm going to be real with you. It's, yeah, it was, there were the money. So sure. <laughs> there, was, there was a situation where, well, one thing I was at a, I was, I was at one firm and um, in the early two thousands, that's when uh, Enron 
and um, MCI and uh, Global Crossings, all these other companies started going with all this going down because of these um, corporate malfeasance and accounting frauds and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And so the Congress uh, enacted PCAOB uh, and then the Dodd-Frank Act. Mm -hmm. And so you had the uh, uh, Public Company Oversight Committee Board, whatever the heck it is called, but um, they, they invested a crap ton of money into that uh, in, in response. And so they were hiring aggressively. So to answer your question, the accounting industry around that time, people in accounts and also in tax, because there's a, there's a tax component to publicly traded um, companies as well as their financial statements. Uh, the market was insane. Like it didn't matter. I got calls every single, every other day from, from recruiters, from companies, you know, that's before LinkedIn. And they're just yeah. like, they, 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 they knew where you worked or you kind of, someone got a, someone knew, oh, I know this guy works here as a CPA, whatever. Yeah. My phone was ringing off the freaking hook. <laughs> and, and they're like, we'll give you $10,000 signing bonus, but pay, you know, it was like that. And you're like, yeah. uh, like I, I, I'm staying here and I'm not really too happy. And you're going to give me a 20 or 25% raise yeah. and some other stuff and, and some perks. And all. I was like, okay, I'm out. And so that's, that, that was, that's what precipitated a lot of the, a lot of the movement earlier on. Okay. Um, and, and then some of it too was just, uh, some of it too was just personalities and understanding. I didn't know what I wanted. I didn't know where I wanted to, I didn't have any direction in, like for me, uh, work-wise. Mm -hmm. Um, I wasn't really, I didn't have a direction as to where I wanted to go The things that I was kind of interested in, but I, you know, it's, it's kind of hard to get on those teams. And so I was like, well, maybe I could try my, try my lot somewhere else. Yeah. Good. Good. So, so also in your journey, you have written a couple of books. What, so I'm looking at Start Me Up, the no business, uh, the no business plan, business plan. Uh, what made you decided, or what made you decide to want to write a book and to write this book specifically? So, um, see, that's another. So that's one of the. Remember, I told you earlier this. This. this yeah. Called, um, there's, <laughs> I have these three stories in which massive amounts of action, all the other stuff, led to success. Mm -hmm. So one of them was basketball. One of them was going to college, um, and, and becoming a citizen. Mm -hmm. kind of go together. And the third yeah. one was his book. Excellent. I'm and glad I've hit all three of them. <laughs> we did, man. We were, I knew we were going to get there. I knew when, yeah. when we were booked this call, this was going to happen. But, <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, this, that's just the kind of podcast and interviewer you are. Mm -hmm. So, um, so what happened in, in this particular case, uh, funny enough, in the late nineties, I was writing business plans for startups and ID, people who had ideas. And uh, I, I did, I did a startup plan for an econ class. And this is in 1997, and basically the 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 model was um, back back then. I couldn't afford it. I couldn't afford to buy all my books in, in, in college, you know, which was insane. Yeah. Like a textbook was like $600. That's insane. And, I, and then they changed oh, yeah. it next year, next mm -hmm. semester. I was I was furious. So I couldn't afford a lot of this crap. And I said, well, part of the reason is there's too many people in the middle of the transaction. And so one, there's all the all the all the prices are artificial artificially um, created. And as a result, it can be artificially inflated. So what I realized is that the publisher knows they can get an information, they get because they get information from the, from uh, whoever the, the uh, whoever the author is or wherever the uh, people are who has a syllabus who tells the publisher to change these pages. So there's conversation between those two, everybody else in the middle is irrelevant. Mm -hmm. So what I just what I, so my idea at the time was to create um, distribution hubs all over the country for college textbooks. Um, professors submit syllabuses for books that they want to stock or whatever, and then the distribution place holds it, and then students can order those books directly from the distribution set or from you know from the company. And it's, and depending on where it's located, those books get sent to you a lot quicker. 
postage is a lot less because it's closer. Um, it could be on trucks, you know, this before Amazon, obviously before Amazon was doing anything else other than books. And so that was kind of the premise of the, uh, of, of the idea. I wrote the business plan, presented it. I got a B. And then my, <laughs> my, uh, my professor laughed. He said, ah, oh, there's no way this is going to happen. It's a bunch of nonsense, da, 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 da. And I was like, I go, and, and, and he was kind of discouraging. So I didn't really pursue it. And then uh, maybe two years later, two and a half years later, there was uh, eFollet, a varsity books, um, two or three other ones that all went public, mm-hmm. hundreds, tens of millions of 30 million, you know, multiple millions of dollars, nine, 10 figures. And then I sent my, I sent my professor an email cause I'm kind of petty. So I sent my professor an email <laughs> and I said, remember, yeah, remember you told me all this nonsense, da, 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 da. I listed a couple companies and he wrote back, you were right. You know, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, but that goes to show you that if you see something in life, in your business and people who are listening in, in, in your life, in your business and what you're doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and you feel you feel there's conviction behind it. The average person is not going to understand what you're doing, and it's not their fault, right? The mistake you're making is you think you need to get validation from them. Now, mm-hmm. if I'm getting, if I'm speaking to somebody else that that has experience or has logistical experience or something like that, that's kind of part of what I'm trying to do, and they give me advice, then I'm going to listen to that to some degree. But they may not have the same vision or the same um, um, vision that I have. Right. If Steve Jobs listened to everybody, he wouldn't have made the I, the iPad. He wouldn't have made um, um, the iPod. He wouldn't have done any of these things because they told right. him, just, you know, be cool, just make a computer, you know, for for creative people, and don't worry about anything else. Mm-hmm. You know, people wouldn't be waiting out, standing outside in the line to buy a phone that hasn't changed. Like mm-hmm. that's what's happening right now. So um, his vision was on another level. So I, I know people um, like to quote Steve Jobs a lot, but to my point, that's that's kind of the the idea. So. I'm telling you that story to, to set up how I, how I got to the book. So I've been writing business plans for a while. What I realized is, and I, I pitched a lot of ideas too. I had a, almost got a couple ideas funded. Um, I used to go, I used to go on the, on the road shows, venture road, road shows, fly, you know, fly to the South, fly to the West, mm-hmm. I'll speak to people locally, venture meetings, pitch me. I did all that crap. And um, one of the things I realized is that nobody ever reads anything that you present them. So uh, here's a perfect example. So I went to, I remember one pitch I was giving, I brought my business plan with my partner, which was about maybe 60, 70 pages long, which was, you know, 59 pages too long. And then <laughs> he opened it up to the table of contents. One of them was a bunch of VCs. One of the opened up to the table of contents, looked at it, went one page, ripped it out, went to another page, ripped it out, went to another page, ripped it out, went to another page, ripped it out. And then he gave me back the rest. And I was like, what, what? And then, and then he explained, it's like, I don't need, all the other stuff is just fluff. And it's like, I'm, no disrespect to you, but we, we see a lot of these. It's the same revolutionary, changing the game, like all that kind of crap. Yeah. All I want to know is, does your idea or your company solve a problem? How big is that problem? Is it worth, is it enough for us to, for it to scale? Is it like a $10 million problem or is it a $100 billion problem? Hmm. Um, what are you going to be charging price-wise? Is that enough? Is that enough? Uh, is the price high enough to fund your operations, or is it a situation where you have to start? You have to start raising money. Now, when I say that, I think about Uber, I think about Lyft, I think about you know these meal delivery uh, companies. They're all going to suffer in the next couple of years, um, mainly for that particular reason because they're not self. They're, they're not. They're not sustaining. Right. I get. A, I get a message from from Lyft every other week that says fifty percent off on your rides. Mm-hmm. You know who's paying for that? The person who invested in Lyft. Yeah, the, exactly. The stockbroker, the, stock the, the plumber in New York, the, yeah. the cop in Illinois, like they're paying for, for my ride right now, half of my ride. Yeah. So not, not the ride sharing. So 
Um, and then the, and then another thing was like uh, your uh, another part uh, uh, the venture capital uh, a person I mentioned was um, the importance of um, having systems. How are you going to deliver your product and your service? Have you got that down? Mm -hmm. And then last was sales. How are you going to sell? Are you going to sell? Are you doing the old, you know, old uh, web 1.0 model where we just get a bunch of users and then we hopefully as a freemium and then hopefully convert them. And so I was like, holy shit, this guy is making a lot of sense. And then I kept this lesson in my head for years as I moved on to other ideas and I started working. And then I started, people would ask me for advice on business plans. And I said, I don't want to write them anymore. And I said, this has to be a better way. And that's what led to the book. Um, Sorry, we have a little business plan, business plan. Funny enough with that, when I told yeah. you earlier about that, my story mm -hmm. um, is I, I pitched over 250 different literary agents, uh, the concept. Um, one kind of listened to me. Most of them said no. Actually, like 99% of them said, you know, throw to hell um, in, in, in nice words. Mm -hmm. And then what I realized after... Um, I had two friends, I have two friends of mine, but one of them, one of which is a star of a TV show called Hoarders mm -hmm. uh, on A&E. He's uh, one of the cleaning consultants. Now he has a new show on PBS called okay. Legacy something or other. But anyways, uh, Matt Paxson, very good friend of mine. We talk, we, we always talk ideas back and forth. We've been doing it for 10 years. And uh, we've been trying to work together on some TV thing, whatever. But um, great guy. So he was still in the middle of the show. He was, he was supposed to have another show that was going to be produced by a couple of big producers like I like get talk show kind of ish type of things. So we're talking on the phone and I'm telling him, I'm like, I go, dude, I'm so discouraged. Mm -hmm. I just had a literary agent who was interested in me. They, they got my proposal. They, they try to sell it to one of the largest uh, business book publishers. They said yes. And then two weeks later they said no. And at that time, so I call him after that. I'm, I'm literally, I'm so just, I'm like, I'm so sick of this. Literally part of my friend, I go, I'm sick of this shit. Yeah. I just, you know, this is, this is hard. Like I'm, I'm just going to like say fuck it and just you know move on. And then, he he said, you know what? The same thing happened to me with a lot of different things. But what I realized is, if I just kept kept uh, kept being patient and staying staying focused on what I was trying to do, it whatever you said, whatever you, someone said no to you, it ends up turning around eventually to what you want. I was like, okay, I'll, I'll get more time. And then literally two days later, literary agent calls me and says, we have we have a we have a publishing deal, um, business book publisher out of New York, New Jersey wants to publish your book. They gave me the advance I want. And said, that's the great news. I go, what's the bad news? And they said, well, you have to write this book in three months. And <laughs> I said, ah, damn. I was like, hey, you know what? I spent, as I said, I was like, you know what? I spent four years trying to, trying to get this, like two and a half to three, like two and a half to four years trying to do this. Mm -hmm. I, it, three months is nothing. So this is in the summer. I'm busy working 12 hours a day. I'm working 12 hours a day for a client. And then when I come home at about eight, nine o'clock at night, I eat. I write until two in, two in the morning mm -hmm. and then I get up and do it again every weekday. On the weekends, I wrote for eight hours a piece. Mm -hmm. um, and Stephen Pressfield always talks about this, you know, um, in uh, I think uh, The War of Art. I think he said that. It's like resistance is like your enemy. Right. And the, he said the, the, the professional gets up and writes every, does whatever he or she's supposed to do every single day. And the amateur does it when they feel like it. Mm -hmm. And I'll, I was given an opportunity to write a book and get it published traditionally and get it published, you know, have it in bookstores, right? That's a surreal ass moment when you walk into a bookstore and your book is there. Mm -hmm. I went to, I went to New York to do a television um, appearance on MSNBC or one or Fox or something. And I forgot my book. And so I went to a Barnes and Nobles, I think in union square 
and my, they had a copy of my book and I bought it. And the woman who's checking me out, because you should see I'm on the cover of it, she's looking at the book and looking at me and looking at the book. And I was like, no, no, you don't understand. I'm like, I'm not that guy. I'm not trying to, I'm not, I really forgot to bring books up to this, but whatever. And, you know, it looks kind of crazy when I do that. But, yeah. But, but to my point is, is I put a lot of work and a lot of effort into this. And I, I put a lot of focus into this. And so um, seeing this come to fruition is another level. It not only being a bestseller on Amazon, it ended up being uh, published overseas in Indonesia. I've never been to Indonesia. Mm -hmm. like, it, I sold a lot of copies in Indonesia. And it was translated to Indonesian. And I've never been there. <laughs> so, you know what I'm saying? So it's, it's to a deeper point, it's focus, consistent action, massive action, identifying what you're trying to do and then creating the steps to get there. And then last but not least, it's your responsibility. Everybody's responsibility. Like what you're doing with this podcast, you're trying to get something out to the world. This is a legacy. Like something were to happen to you or me or whatever tomorrow, you, these things will, will exist in perpetuity. It's out there. Right. Right. And there's so many people who sit at home who are very talented and gifted, but someone at the wrong time came, you know, got in their way and told them some nonsense, told them a story that they, they, they were sold on and they're, they're hiding their gift from the world. Yeah. So you've, you've kind of spoken a, a lot about this, but I want to ask this specific question, the idea about fear. So, you, you know, you're someone who definitely is a, as a doer, and you go out there and you find what you want and you really put your, you know, lean into it. But what about those times when you do feel fearful or apprehensive? Um, and it's clear that you don't let that hold you back. But how do you get to that point where fear is no longer a, a factor? I'm scared all the time. Yeah. I'm always scared. And, and most people who have who've, who've achieved great things, um, they're scared too. And anybody who tells you otherwise is lying. They're scared. Um, maybe, maybe, maybe here's a difference though. Their fear doesn't necessarily exceed long term like some other, like most people do. Mm -hmm. So, for example, if they're like, "Hey, I need to invest fifteen million dollars in da -da -da, some building a building or whatever," they're gonna be like, "Oh, this is what if this goes to shit? What if what happens is this? What are that?" And you think all these things, but that 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 level of level of uncertainty only it's it's only around for a certain period of time, and then they dominate that uncertainty with action. Sure. You know what I'm saying? And so, yeah. so that's, so that's for me personally, that's the, that's the focus um, that I have. So for me, I'm scared all the time. Things I'm trying to do now, building my, you know, my resolution business, um, doing, do, I have a few other things that I'm working on, but mainly my resolution business, building mm -hmm. that I'm, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in terror. Right. But the reason, the, one of the main reasons why we have fear is because of the unknown. And the unknown means a lack of certainty. So my responsibility is to build certainty and enough. So when I'm making a decision to work, to act or to move in a certain direction, I'm, I'm always happy. I'm always confident in my steps. I tell my wife this all the time. Um, I, I work hard to be certain when I make a decision mm -hmm. because nobody wants to work with a wishy-washy person. Right. It, it's kind of, it's, a, it's annoying. I don't, it doesn't matter if it's a man or a woman, it's annoying, it's upsetting. I don't know, what do you want? What do you want? Like, no one wants to hear that. It's really annoying. And there's something inherent in a person that makes it really upsetting. And it also is something in a leader that makes them want to, um, like, I, I, I can, we can talk about something and something you don't know about. And I'm telling you for a fact, and the way I'm speaking is confident. I have certainty in my voice. Mm -hmm. You're going to start to believe the things that I'm saying, right? Right. But, 
if, if there's if there's if, if there's wavering in, in what I'm doing and my decisions and everything else, um, you're not gonna you're not gonna get on board. And in, so if you're not gonna get on board, imagine what's going on in my subconscious mind, right? I'm gonna I'm not gonna get on board. I'm gonna start second guessing everything I do. That's 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 a horrible place to live. So especially in your own head. So um, so back to your point of fear. That's literally how I focus on. That's how I get over fears. I'm like, I, oh, here's another thing. I li- I have a my mentality, my my philosophy of life is stoicism. I live as a stoic. I I adhere to stoicism in a lot of forms. Um, I I listen to. I, I'm I was raised Catholic, mm-hmm. Christian, which and again they're not they're not necessarily related, but um, uh, stoicism and, and and religion. But stoicism is sort of like a, a, a pseudo religion for me, where I believe that, and I know this for a fact, I'm going to die, right? We're all mm-hmm. going to die. All the stuff we're talking about doesn't, a lot of things that we, we obsess about don't really matter. Doesn't, no one gives a shit about any of those things. You will die, they put you in a box or whatever religion you're at and they bury you or they put you at sea or whatever it is. And that's the end. And, you're, and your spirit goes elsewhere and you're a spiritual being. Mm-hmm. So, so for me, I, I look at it as like, well, if that's the case, if there's finality in this, why am I acting like my life is not final? Why am I wasting time, right? And now it doesn't mean, doesn't mean I have to be working every time. If I choose to sit down and watch a movie, everything I do has to be a choice. Right. And that's how I look at it. It's a choice. It's not, oh, I have to do this. That's not an ob- that's that obligations is turns into, turns into servitude, turns into slavery. Literally, that's, that's literally what ends up happening. So everything I do, I'm, I tell myself it's a choice. I'm choosing to do this. I'm choosing to go here. I'm choosing mm-hmm. to go to the, see these people I don't want to see. I'm choosing. And then I can explain to myself why I'm doing that. And so if I know I'm going to die, why am I going to waste time? Like I like behaving, like I'm going to be here forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So with, so you're, again, you're, you're a very calculated and, and busy person. What are you working on now? That's, um, you know, in this, this is actually now where I, I this, this call will be released later in, in 2020, but it's just, it's, it's uh, January 3rd, so I, I'm sure you've already kind of set up some goals for yourself way beyond this. So what are some things you're working on right now and also in the future for yourself and for your company? Um, my main thing is, is, is increasing the, so it, it's increasing the level of investment in the company. So what that basically means is hiring and, and actually focusing, eight, like the Pareto principle, 80%, uh, uh, 80% of my efforts on, on, uh, on lead generation, Mm-hmm. And, and getting in front of getting in front of people in the marketplace. So part of the problem is something I realized too is that um, when somebody doesn't know you or they don't know what you do, like, I mean everybody's had this. I told this story before. I can't remember what I was doing. I was um, oh yeah, I used to have um, I, I gave a, I gave a speech at a conference once about getting getting media attention, how to get media attention and stuff. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I said is if nobody knows you. Um, no one's going to do business with you. And so the, 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 and, and I said that the way you can see that is this. Um, and I saw this at, I was at a, some dinner, some business dinner. And this guy was like, yeah, I sold my house. And they, you know, I went over here and I'm moving over here now. It's great. And we're moving. We got to move it. And the guy next to him was like, I, I'm a realtor. How come you didn't, you know, talk to me about that? He's like, oh yeah, that's right. I forgot. No, I'm sorry. We had, my wife had a friend and a cousin. If that person was close enough to be at a business dinner, he was, he was close enough to get the deal. Right. But the reason he didn't get the deal is because the guy sitting next to him didn't remember that that guy was a realtor. Right. And so that's, that's the main problem people have. They're, they're, in a, they're living in a life of obscurity. And so my goal was to get 
literally, I'm almost omnipresent in front of people everywhere. So they know what we do, what I do. And what I do is not just resolve taxes. What I do is give you peace of mind so you go to sleep. Mm-hmm. Uh, what I do is keep money in your bank account. What I do is help you save money on taxes and get your penalties removed. Like that's, that gives you the peace of mind that you can use your money to do something else. And it's not stick, you know, stuck in Uncle Sam's uh, bank vaults. So, right. so my focus basically is to get in front of as many people as possible, which if I do that, then I'll have the resources to scale adequately enough. Mm-hmm. Excellent. So with everything that you've done and experienced so far, what would you say has been the best advice that you have ever received? Um, I'll say one thing. Uh, there's a few different people have said different things. One of yeah. which is uh, Grant Cardone. He's a uh, good dude. Um, he, him and, uh, and I've, I've had variations of this some other people. So I, I just remember him because I was just, reading something recently, but um, it's making a, de- making a decision and getting, get, making a decision, getting certainty in your decision mm-hmm. and then applying massive amounts of action to it. So, you know, we were talking earlier, I told you the three stories, all of those had those concepts, all those had those, those factors. And that's anytime I've ever succeeded in anything, those were all a part of the equation. Um, there's no, there's no luck. It's not, yeah, I mean, I get it. You know, I'm lucky that I was born to the parents I was born. I'm lucky that I was born in the Western Hemisphere. Like, I get all that stuff. Mm-hmm. But there are probably, I don't know, 500 million people live in, in you know, in America and in, uh, in the U.S., uh, Canada and the U.S., and there are not that many people who are successful. And most right. people just live their lives like, you know, like caterpillars, and then they just, you know, get a pension and they die. And life, like if you see your life as more value, and that's, you know, here's the other thing too, is, you know, as a stoic, if you see your life as more valuable, um, don't you think you can do more? Mm-hmm. Like being productive is good for you. Right. And so you'll talk to people and they say, Oh, you should rest. I'm like, I only, I only, I can only understand and appreciate rest and vacation when I've worked hard. Mm-hmm. If I don't work hard, it doesn't mean anything to me. Not in the same level as it did me digging a ditch for a week. And then right. having to sit for a couple of days, I'm like, yeah, this is awesome. My feet hurt. I'm, you know, you can appreciate the, each moment that you're spending by yourself or whatever you're doing for leisure time. But if you're not, people work, you know, five days a week, barely work five hours a day. And then on the weekends, like I got, I got, I've been working all day. I got to, you haven't really been doing anything and it's, it's fleeting. So, so for me, it's like, if I realize that time is, time is, you know, there's a, there's a ticking clock. Can I, can I increase my level of my production to get to my potential? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. excellent well Avon, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me I really appreciate it if the listeners would like to read your book see more about what you're working on where are the best places they can go to do that so there's two, two areas if you want to um, learn more about me personally you can go to abongeka.com e-b-o-n-g-e-k-a.com uh, if you want to learn about my company what kind of what we do for individuals and um with back tax issues, it's called economicstaxrelief.com. So E-K-A-N-O-M-I-C-S, taxrelief.com. Yeah. And uh, if you want to get a copy of the book, um, you can either get it on my site, amonica.com, or you can go look it up on Barnes & Nobles or, uh, or Amazon. Awesome. Excellent. Well, Ebong, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I'll make sure all those go in the show notes so people can click right through. Thank you so much. Um, this, this has been awesome, so I appreciate it. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you.
Thank you for listening to another episode of the Advance Your Art Podcast. If you like this episode, please go into iTunes and give us a five-star rating. And while you're there, hit the subscribe button so that every single time I release a new episode, it will go directly to you without even thinking about it. If you're interested in hearing older episodes, please go to AdvanceYourArt.com where you can find the catalog of everything I've done so far, as well as contact information and projects I'm working on. Thank you again, and have a great day.